Good morning, everyone. Glenn Schiffman here, and welcome to the Angie Home Services second quarter earnings call. Joining me today is Joey Levin, Chairman of Angie Home Services and CEO of IAC, and Brandon Reidenauer, CEO of Angie Home Services. Joey and I will also address any questions you may have on IAC's second quarter results and its investment in MGM. Similar to last quarter, supplemental to our quarterly earnings releases, IAC has also published its quarterly shareholder letter. We will not be reading the shareholder letter on this call. It is currently available on the Investor Relations section of IAC's website. I will turn the call over to Joey shortly to make a few brief introductory remarks, and then we will open it up to Q&A. Before we get to that, I'd like, you to, I'd like to remind you that during this call, we may discuss our outlook and future performance, as well as the prospects for IAC's investment in MGM. These forward-looking statements typically may be preceded by words such as we expect, we believe, we anticipate, or similar such statements. These forward-looking views are subject to risks and uncertainties, and our actual results could differ materially from the views expressed here today. Some of these risks have been set forth in IAC's, Angie Home Services, and MGM's second quarter press releases and our respective, respo respective reports filed with the SEC. We'll also discuss certain non-GAAP measures, which, as a reminder, include adjusted EBITDA, which we'll refer to today as EBITDA for simplicity during the call. I'll also refer you to our press releases, the IAC shareholder letter, and again, to the investor relations section of our websites for all comparable GAAP measures and full reconciliations for all material non-GAAP measures. Joey, let's jump right into it. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, the big news this, this quarter, uh, on top of I think being a very strong quarter for IAC generally is the uh, MGM investment. And we've gotten, as you'd imagine, uh, a lot of questions and, and curiosity around that. And the, the big thing I think I, I want to hit on is while the form of this investment is a little different than what we've done uh, historically in the sense of it's a public security, it's a minority investment, the concept is totally consistent with what we do and what we've always done, which is uh, be opportunistic and, and seize opportunities when we see them. That means, uh, uh, and, and opportunities of a theme. We look for very large market. We, we have that in gaming for sure, $450 billion globally, maybe a third of that in the U.S., and still uh, less than 10% penetrated online, uh, at which could segue to the next one. Offline to online transition and natural tailwinds. That 10% penetration is definitely getting bigger. It's definitely getting meaningfully bigger. Maybe uh, we'll, we'll pick the wrong horse, or maybe we'll, the, the, the execution won't be there, but there's no question that the 10% the gets bigger over time, uh, and, you, and you benefit from those natural tailwinds. The other thing is scale dynamics here. It's, it's not a typical uh, marketplace business, but this business, the customer experience improves in this business, actually both their offline business and their online business, as more customers are there, it improves for every uh, individual customer. And, and lastly, which is something that's always been important to us and, and certainly important to us here, is great value. This is a time where there's a, we think, a temporary dislocation. We do believe, we don't have any idea when the world comes back to normal, but we do believe the world eventually comes back to normal. 
And we do believe that when it comes back to normal, this business is incredibly well positioned to benefit from that. Uh, but there's a, a value opportunity right now. Uh, the, the, the key question is whether they have enough capital to get from here to there. And, and we're highly confident that, that they do have the capital to, to get there. Uh, so when we look at all that, that, co that combination of offline to online, their real competitive advantages, the value, and we say this is an opportunity for IAC, and this is very consistent with opportunities for IAC uh, that we've, we've taken advantage of in our past, and we, we drew some analogies in the letter. I know I won't, I won't repeat here. The second thing I want to cover is this monthly metrics experiment we've, we've got here, which is we're, we're publishing the figures monthly. And you saw we, we, we now have numbers out through July. And I think that's uh, important to understanding the business, understanding the flow and the rhythm of the business and giving you all the information that we have and, and not no longer needing to rely on proxies for that information or some people being able to, to buy certain data sources or things like that with information. We can just publish it so everybody can see. Uh, the only thing I, I caution everybody is Again, we said this in the letter and we said this since we started is we don't manage the business for a month nor a quarter or a year, but certainly not for a month and uh, months can be volatile. Uh, there's all kinds of things that could be in prior year period or current period and I, I wouldn't uh, obviously people will trade on whatever they want to trade on and, and focus on whatever they want to focus on. That's not up to us, but I'd say that the, the monthly numbers can move around. We'll do our best to explain them, but I wouldn't be, we're not overly uh, concerned about any particular month, and so I, I just encourage you to understand that that's the way that we think about it, and we can, we can explain what's going on uh, as well as we know uh, when we know it. Uh, so with that, I will turn it to questions. Uh, Mark Schneider has also joined us. You can't see him on the camera here, but Mark Schneider, our head of investor relations, is more than six feet away from us over there uh, uh, working the keyboard. Thanks, Joey. Uh, we're going to start with our first question from uh, Ross Sandler at Barclays. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for doing the call this way. Really appreciate it. Um, so maybe we can start with MGM. Um, Knowing you guys, you've probably looked at the digital gaming space for a number of years, and there's been a bunch of interesting transactions. So the question is, what drew you specifically to MGM? Uh, was it the licenses, the you know loyalty program that they have? And given their partnership with, with GVC, uh, what does IEC bring to the table that they maybe don't already have? And then, Glenn, lastly, what's, what's the cost basis on the uh, investment? Thank you. Yeah, Ross is a little bit of all of that and more. And and in in I'll, I'll probably do that in reverse order. But in uh, the question of what do we bring to the table that they don't already have, the answer is we don't know. When we entered travel, uh, we didn't bring anything to the table in travel. When we entered home services, we didn't bring anything to the table in home services. When we entered dating, we didn't bring anything to the table in dating. What we looked at is who is what do we think the future looks like? And I talked about that in the opener a little bit of is 10% penetration going to be the case 10 years from now? And our answer with high confidence is no, it will be meaningfully higher than that. Uh, and when we get into it, we'll learn more and we'll figure out where we can help. There are some general dynamics that I think that we're very familiar with that we hope to, to share with MGM and try and be helpful in terms of 
things we've seen on, on uh, conversion channels we think that have been valuable to us, things we've learned in direct marketing, things we've learned in performance marketing, uh, what kind of uh, metrics we view as successful metrics in certain channels and what kind of uh, metrics we view as unsuccessful metrics in certain channels, and those general learnings have, have been helpful to us as we've entered new categories, uh, but we'll learn. And so one of the things that, that's great about MGM in what they're doing in digital is they have this partnership with GVC, and GVC seems to be quite capable. They're capable. They're a top three player in, I think, 20 countries or more than 20 countries now, and they have scaled these businesses, they've built the technology, they've spent the marketing, and so they know what we're doing and you, what, what they're doing. And when you pair that uh, expertise with the assets that MGM has, which we think are incredibly valuable in this area, we think that that's a winning combination. And so we look at this theme and say, how do we, we enter uh, this category with a winning combination? Very little known fact is we actually did enter this category years ago. We had the timing right, the execution wrong. We had, after uh, DraftKings and FanDuel, we had a, a also ran third player in the market called Draft Street, which we built from scratch, invested in, and went nowhere. I think we sold it. I can't even remember. Sold it is probably a generous term. I think we uh, gave it to one of uh, DraftKings or FanDuel, and uh, that wasn't our best execution we've ever done. But we followed the category for a while, and we've looked for the, for the opportunity. What MGM has uniquely, and again, also with the, the joint venture, is we view that the, the offline and the online are a complement to each other. A lot of times in a category you think the offline incumbent is going to move too slowly, is, it doesn't have the technical bones to do it, and has some, some uh, expense infrastructure that is a, a drag rather than a benefit to the, the online. You can think about that in areas like retail where there's a big retail footprint that's expensive or uh, I, you can come up with lots of analogies there. In gaming, our view is that the entertainment experience, the in-person experience in a hopefully a post-COVID world, but that experience is not replaceable online and that experience is a tremendous complement to the online experience. Think about just one little benefit that, that not a little benefit, probably a big benefit that MGM has in this category, they're doing millions of room nights. They're uh, interacting with those customers on check-in. That gives them an opportunity at a margin positive way to create a digital footprint on the device of their customers and a digital interaction point on the device of their customers. When you think about the billions of dollars that we spend on marketing across all of our brands to make that digital footprint and then uh, uh, generate a, a revenue event or generate a positive customer experience in there, that's a very, very expensive channel for us. MGM has that with all their customers when they're checking into a room at a margin positive time before they've even started with a digital uh, uh, experience. And we think that that is a, a real significant overlap and a real asset, and we think that there's lots of assets along those lines. And when you think about the, the pure digital players having to, to deliver a compelling, exciting, fun, physical experience, as against the physical players having to, to deliver a digital experience, I really like MGM's uh, position on that and, and what they can deliver for the consumer. So that is, is, is pretty unique in the market. They're the only one, I think, who've been very aggressive in that combined area, and they're playing to win. 
and that's why we we like them and that's why we're backing them and that's why we're excited about it and and hopefully we can add value over time in in the ways that we've been able to add value with lots of these businesses over time but uh at, at the start it's a great team with a great vision and great assets to go after a category that's very large with tailwinds and then just some of the housekeeping items we own 59 uh, million shares uh we paid $1.018 billion for that, uh, so our basis is about $17.25 or so, and we're left after uh, that investment with $2.9 uh, billion of cash. So don't forget to put that 59 million, in your sum, 59 million shares in your sum of the parts. Uh, and then also from a housekeeping perspective, you saw in our balance sheet that was in uh, marketable securities. Uh, in uh, in this quarter, going forward, it'll be in long-term uh, investments given our uh, given our posture, uh, and it'll be on a quarterly basis, mark to market. So you'll see the ebb and flow uh, of that investment going through the other income uh, parens expense uh, line uh, in the uh, in the income statement. Which basically means net income will be useless from here <laughs> on out. And not that everyone really focuses on that particular metric, but I, I do view that as a relatively useless data point now. There will be volatility for sure. Okay, our next question, uh, we'll go to Corey Carpenter at J.P. Morgan. Great. Thanks for the question. Um, on Angie, Brandon, I was hoping you could give us some more color on what drove the demand and supply trends we saw in July. Maybe how those track versus your expectations, and then also how it informs your thinking um, into the back half of the year. Thanks. Thanks, Corey. So obviously we finished Q2 strong, uh, with May and June in particular being strong. In July, we saw a continuation of those same trends. In particular, if you just look at overall revenue, uh, globally revenue in July was about flat to June and is actually up a bit in North America. That's relatively in line with how we expect the business to perform on a sequential basis and, and was in fact perhaps incrementally better than our internal views. Uh, from an operating metric standpoint, SR volume and consumer demand continues to be elevated in July uh, relative to the post-COVID post -COVID trends. And on the SP sales front, you know, we continue to see a blistering pace of, of new sales originations. Uh, the last four months, including July, have been the, the highest four months in the history of the company. Um, and then, uh, and, and in particular with July, you know, we were up 53% in, in SP sales year over year. So, July was, in fact, a strong month and really a continuation of, of the trends we saw in the late uh, part of Q2. When you look at the year-over-year -year sort of headline number, uh, as Joey alluded to earlier, there's a, a, there are a number of things that can affect that. Last year was a, a particularly volatile year uh, with weather. Uh, if you guys recall, the first half of the year saw a really damp and wet spring. Um, so July was a bit of an outlier in terms of uh, strong growth and, and makes for a, for a difficult comp. Where we sit today... You know, I, I think the consumer demand trends as we've seen them are, are both strong and likely to, to sustain at this level for the foreseeable future. Um, what the key for us and, and what's been most difficult is that we have seen the, the provider side of the equation under some pressure as an industry. And, and what I mean by that, we, we run a, a monthly, sorry, a weekly sentiment survey. And right now, more than two-thirds of SPs say their business is being negatively impacted by COVID. About 40% have uh, indicated they're operating at a lower level of capacity. Um, we track this every single week, and we did see, you know, we are seeing and did see incremental improvement, you know, throughout June and July. 
It's a little slower than I think we would have hoped. Uh, I personally hoped coming out of the lockdowns that we would see, you know, a, a very fast resumption of uh, of former, you know, sort of capacity levels. But we're seeing that as more of a week to week, you know, few points a week type of recovery. And the reason for that, as reported by SBs, is you know they're dealing with supply chain issues in certain categories. Uh, they've had some challenges hiring. So there's good and bad here. I, I think the good on the provider side is that uh, I don't believe you have to see an end of COVID-19 to see these businesses uh, come back to full capacity. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I think it's going to be an incremental process that takes place over the second half of the year. Just a couple numbers, uh, uh, Corey, to support what Brandon, uh, what Brandon said. RSRs in July at 24% growth was actually the third highest monthly growth rate in SR since 2000, uh, 2018. So I think that's uh, nice and, uh, and elevated. Second of all, Brandon talked about the volatility. As you know, last year, we grew revenue 20%. The dispersion of the monthly growth rates went from 15 to 26% uh, throughout, uh, throughout the year. So as Brandon said, it depends on the year-over-year comps. Mondays, for example, are a big, are a big day for us. And last July, we had five Mondays in the calendar. This July, we had four Mondays uh, in the calendar. Um, and the 26% growth rate actually uh, was July of last year. And the difference between the 15 and the 20% was over a three-month uh, three period. Um, you asked about the back half of the year, um, and we, accept, we expect it to accelerate uh, clearly off of the July levels. And we're optimistic the third quarter will uh, slightly accelerate off of the 9% uh, that we clocked uh, in the second quarter. And then the fourth quarter, we expect to continue uh, to, uh, to accelerate. Why? Uh, because as Brandon said, we think our COVID-induced supply constraint, where the SPs are to some extent impaired, we expect that to lift during the year. And as it does, our ability to monetize um, uh, each um, uh, transaction uh, and continue to add value to our SPs, we think that will increase uh, during the year, especially given the strong sales performance of which Brandon spoke. Okay, our, our next question will be from Eric Sheridan at UBS. Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, Brandon, maybe I'll follow up on um, Corey's question and and pull the frame out a little bit. When you see the environment you're sitting in right now, how do you think about aligning your strategic priorities about what's in your control versus what's out of your control on both the demand and the supply side when you sort of try to align those investments against your medium to long-term goals for you trying to take the business? Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, our, our goals and, and, and sort of pipeline of initiatives haven't changed from the beginning of the year. Obviously, COVID uh, has presented some additional supply challenges, but our, our, our two primary goals remain. First, uh, creating a stickier relationship with homeowners, um, a more durable relationship. And then second, obviously, we need to bring more provider capacity to the marketplace. Uh, what, you know, when I think about the key investments we're making, first of all, we have uh, plans to rapidly grow our sales force in the second half of the year. Uh, we were intending to do that in Q2, but as we moved our workforce remote, uh, we had to learn all over again how do you actually uh, hire and onboard salespeople in a remote fashion. So we've been working through that for the last few months and are uh, deeply scaling that at this point. We continue to scale fixed price. Uh, that is a, a huge lever to bring more capacity to the marketplace. Uh, this is another situation where, you know, in the later, later, later days of March, uh, it, uh, you know, we pulled back perhaps on our pace of scaling providers. 
when if we had had perfect foresight, you know, we would have actually ramped our investment. Uh, we've corrected that as of uh, late Q2 and, and are, uh, you know, working feverishly to bring on as many providers as possible. Uh, we also have a number of new monetization models that we've already uh, got live and are testing. Uh, it's hard to say exactly which of those are going to work. But I think the, the theme here is, is that we're going to bring a number of different tools, uh, you know, and, and methods to the marketplace to get SPs engaged, as we have, as we all know, an enormous amount of consumer demand uh, that, that's currently going unmonetized. On the consumer side and, and provider side, we've introduced uh, a new payments platform, uh, HomeAdvisor Pay, over the last quarter. Uh, that has uh, grown really, really rapidly, and we can, you know, we intend to continue to see that scale over the remainder of the year. We'll soon layer on top of that a financing option for consumers that, you know, frankly, we're very uh, excited about. We don't really believe that consumers have had, uh, you know, an at-your-fingertips financing option when it comes to home projects and home services ever available to them. So we think this is a first-of-its-kind offering. And, uh, you know, we continue to, to focus very heavily on, on driving engagement with our mobile app. Um, we have set, you know, several records over the last few months in terms of mobile, you know, active uh, mobile app users. Uh, crossing the, the million user mark, I think, for two or three months now. And uh, over the last three months, we've grown that audience by 85% year over year. Uh, you put all those things together, and you can kind of see the, the, the story, which is we're trying to drive deeper engagement, more long-lasting relationships with consumers. And we're trying to offer, you know, uh, features and benefits that drive up the value proposition. And we're seeing that resonate uh, with the things we've already launched. We've got a lot in the pipeline to go, to go forward. In terms of what we can't really control, you know, we can't really control supply chain uh, issues in the industry. We need to, you know, we need those to be alleviated somewhat uh, in order to unlock additional capacity. Uh, we know these businesses are out there uh, working uh, actively to try to recover from the things that are sort of hindering them related to COVID. Uh, but, I, you know, we feel like they're solvable. We're seeing them be incrementally solved. And um, while that's outside of our control, I think we feel optimistic that that, will, uh, that, that recovery will continue over the back half of the year. Eric, another, another great data point uh, this quarter that we think bodes really well for the future um, is our SRs from new uh, consumers to the platform uh, grew 25% this quarter and actually accelerated through the quarter. That used to be about flat. Um, and that shows us that either we're taking share from other uh, solutions in the marketplace or we're driving offline to online uh, conversion, given all the great product work that's going on uh, with Brandon uh, and his team. And that is really interesting because that creates tomorrow's repeat uh, use and that creates tomorrow's customer as well. So, uh, you know, we think we have an opportunity here to steal a march on our competitor, be it, you know, some competitors, be it someone else or offline. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add to that. We, we, we do a sentiment survey every week uh, at scale with SPs, and uh, surprisingly, about 50% of them are telling us they're seeing lower consumer demand. And that obviously does not match up with what we're seeing uh, in terms of our marketplace and, and the overall level of consumer demand. So we believe that we were really sitting at the nexus of two different trends. One is obviously people are focusing more on their home. Uh, but as they look for solutions and services, they're, I think, disproportionately coming online and looking for digital, you know, digital means to accomplish that. Um, so those, those are obviously both very positive in terms of providing a structural tailwind for us. Hey, our next question will come from Brad Erickson at, uh, at Needham. Uh, just a couple follow-ups for Brandon. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but wanted to go a little deeper on the SP constraints. I guess 
you know, something like 50% of SRs went unmonetized this quarter. Is there any concern that if that level of zero accepts persists, that you're maybe losing some of those customers maybe forever? And then second, just related to Google, um, are you going after, you know, when you think about HomeAdvisor, is HomeAdvisor going after the same types of SPs that Google is, or do you think there's maybe been sort of a separation in terms of the types of SPs who draw value from a platform like HomeAdvisor versus Google? Just any thoughts there would be great. Yeah, those are both great questions. You know, so, so first of all, whether or not we monetize a request uh, doesn't indicate whether or not we've satisfied a customer. And even if we're not able to monetize, we still have a deep reservoir, you know, the deepest reservoir of, of, of providers to draw upon and to connect consumers with. So the fact that we are seeing such significant growth in consumer demand and such an elevated level of service requests today is, is, is sort of filling our database and filling our, um, our, our, our CRM pipeline and our email pipeline and will drive further growth for the remainder of the year and into next year. Um, if we, weren't, if we weren't able to satisfy those customers, that might be a different story, but monetization really is not an indication of whether or not we make those customers happy. And in fact, with the offering of fixed price, we now offer, uh, I think of the percentage off the top of my head, but uh, of the you know, 200 to 500 projects, we're always offering a solution. Uh, even if folks decide not to engage or, or pull the trigger, or they still had a, a good experience, they were still offered uh, a viable outcome. I would think of that a little bit like uh, if you go to Google and search, you know, don't necessarily need to see an ad at the top uh, or Google doesn't need to monetize for you to have had a successful outcome in finding what you're looking for. And we treat it a little bit the same way, which is we're going to try to make that consumer happy and fulfilled, even if we, if, even if we aren't able to monetize. So the, the fact that we have uh, this huge influx of demand is, is going to, is going to pay off uh, for quite a while for us. I think when it comes to Google, you know, it's, it's a very different product. Uh, you know, if you think about the way Google's product generally works, um, they are reacting to something like a search for plumbers in Denver. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a level higher than us. It's less targeted. And um, they don't really offer the t same types of capabilities around targeting zip codes or targeting individual project types because that's not the way people search in Google. I, I generally think that the, the types of uh, service providers that are attracted to Google's offering are those folks that really want to get an inbound phone call uh, more than anything else and that want to compete in an environment where there's less price competition. Um, I do think there's some segmentation that's happening naturally, um, but I don't have the data to, to back that up. And we haven't really seen, you know, as evidenced by our, our sales productivity and, and, and four record sales months, we haven't really seen that competition put pressure on us. And it's not to say that we won't ever in the future, but I do think the products are sufficiently different that either, uh, it, you know, either the market's so big that we just don't bump into each other or somehow we're tapping into to different SP segments and, and not really overlapping as much as one might think. Okay. Our next question will be from John Blackledge at Cowan. Uh, great, uh, thanks. Uh, on Vimeo, the, the mid-teen ARPU growth uh, was, a, was a great outcome, uh, particularly with the enterprise ARPU uh, as a key driver at, at plus 20% year over year. Uh, could you guys discuss the enterprise adoption um, during COVID-19 and the enterprise demand signals thus far in the third quarter? And then should we expect the enterprise ARPU growth levels uh, to be sustained in 3Q and uh, as we head towards the end of the year? And, and Glenn, if you could just talk about the gross margins at Vimeo 
uh, what you saw in the quarter, that would be great too. Thank you. Enterprise is doing very, very well right now, and uh, the product works, and certainly the, the timing works. When you think about it, just using IAC as a microcosm, and uh, this is uh, we're as, as harsh on our own businesses as we are on external business, but, but going into COVID, I was saying to the Vimeo team, uh, if anybody at IAC tried to expense uh, $10,000 for a town hall software, I'd say we've got a big problem with that individual uh, paying $10,000 for town hall software. And uh, now if somebody says we don't have the best town hall software, I'd say, well, we've got a big problem with that individual if they weren't able to find us the best town hall software, you know, independent of, of price. And I don't think that changes, right? Now we're, we're accustomed to this. We've got this format in this call where we're all using video. We're not using Vimeo for this, but, but where we're using video, this is just a better way of doing it. We're going to do that going forward. Town halls, we never have had everybody in the same room. We, you could do it in one location, but you can't have all locations. And we're going to continue to do that forever, and we're going to want to use the best software to do that, the, the, the system that is flawless, the system that has all the, the features that you want. And I think that is true of most enterprises now. So what we're seeing is we're going into the, the, these enterprises where we already have somebody or a group of people using it, and they're using it in, you know, just charging it on a credit card or, or using it in, in disparate ways. And we're going to that enterprise and saying, we can now be your video solution where everybody can access it. Everybody can access it from one place. It's at one uh, reasonable price, but that is generally higher than, or sometimes meaningfully higher than it's been for one person using it in one spot. And giving the enterprise access to multi-seat licenses in a place is a very uh, natural thing for us to do, a very natural place for us to go. And it's working, and again, I do believe that's sticky. Once you've gone to software for, for video to solve these problems for you, you want that. The physical isn't going to replace that completely. It'll replace some small instances of it, but you're going to want this as a supplement forever. And uh, that's what enterprise is benefiting from. We can see it in the length of the sales cycle, which I think in like late March, early April was literally cut in half. That's come out a little bit, but it's still meaningfully better than it was uh, going into COVID, which going into COVID, it was actually a very relative, it was a 30-day sales cycle. Now we're maybe at a 20-day sales cycle at the peak, it was at probably 15. And that, and the amount of spend is there, the ARPU is hanging in there, and we continue to add features. So I view that as something that, that I think is reliable for quite some time from here. Uh, I think that answered the bulk of the question. Oh, yeah. there was some about ARPU and gross margins. Yeah, on the numbers, um, enterprise is clearly our fastest growing line of business. This quarter, it actually grew greater than 70, uh, 70%, and then bookings uh, were triple digits. Um, so we have a nice uh, nice runway there. And as, as you articulated, one of the reasons why it's growing at that clip is because of, of, of ARPU. And I think we had a, a, a case study in uh, Anjali's recent presentation, it might have been at your conference, where we talked about a retailer that used to be spending $660 uh, with Vimeo. 
uh, on the self-serve because 40% of our enterprise uh, customers have graduated from self-serve. So this, this retailer used to spend $660 with us. We converted them to an enterprise customer, as Joey talked about, that, that pe more people in that organization said, wow, this is a great solution. And now we're getting $660,000 uh, from, uh, from the enterprise customer. And that has lift Ar ARPU. That, uh, that will lift ARPU. In terms of gross margin, you know, we laid out, I think about two years ago, the target of 70%, and we're closing in on that. And uh, we're making such progress there that we think 70% uh, may ultimately uh, prove to be conservative. Great, thank you. Our next question will come from Yusuf Squally at SunTrust. Okay, great, thank you Lewis. so much. Um, Joey, a couple of questions maybe on, on MGM again. Um, how do you affect change by being a minority investor in a public company um, like, like MGM? You, you've been, you guys have been known uh, best as basically taking over entire companies, extracting more value uh, using your tried and true playbook. Just trying to understand how, how you guys do that as a, as a minority shareholder. And then... Um, Will you, as a minority shareholder, actually need a licensed, uh, be licensed by gaming authorities, or, or you don't need to? Uh, I know there is a certain threshold. I don't know what that threshold is. Maybe you can help us with that. One of the things we've heard is that it was just very expensive and burdensome process um, to go through that has traditionally stopped other companies from, uh, from getting into this space. So any clarity there would be great. Sure. Uh the second one, yes, we're going to, it, it varies by state, but the, so there's some rules at a 5% ownership threshold and some other rules at a 10% ownership threshold, but in each state, basically, we're going to have to go through uh, a regulatory process, which is, as, as we understand it, quite burdensome, and we are prepared for that, and uh, that, that will go through in its course. Uh, we're not, other than the the hassle of it, we're not particularly worried about that, but that is a process that we're going to have to go through. Uh, on your first question, as it relates to minority investment and affecting change, again, our goal here is not to, quote unquote, affect change. Our goal here is to be helpful. And I think that we can be helpful in a number of ways as a minority investor. Uh, MGM did say that they intend to invite us to the board, which we think is fantastic, and we think we can be, be very helpful in that way. And separately, we can help through, through access to our people, our businesses, our learnings. Remember, one of the things that I always say with our internal businesses, whether we own 100% or less than 100%, is the biggest synergy between our businesses, the biggest synergy that, that exists in IAC is we never force the businesses to work with each other. We, we do force the businesses, and it doesn't need to be forced because everyone wants to do it, is to, to share data, share information, share learnings. People like sharing what they know and they like uh, learning from others, especially in areas where, where uh, people have been successful in, in showing off things that they've done well. And we, I had a call with the CEOs of IAC's businesses yesterday, 
and I said we should treat MGM in this area in in the same way, in the sense of it's a totally open book. Share anything you, you want to the extent they to the extent there's anybody who wants to learn something of anything that we're doing, which they may not, but to the extent they do, we're a totally open book. We've got a billion dollars into this investment. That's more cash capital than, than actually we've invested in any of the other IAC businesses uh, that are currently in the, the portfolio. And using that information, we should use that information liberally for, for anyone's benefit, uh, for, or sorry, any, anyone at MGM's benefit wherever we can. So that's something that we certainly can and will do, and and hopefully that's helpful. And and as we get more involved, as we learn more, we'll we'll try and find other ways to to add value and and help the business reach what we think is enormous potential. Again, not dissimilar from other areas where we've tried to help businesses uh, involved with IAC reach enormous potential. Thank you. Great. Our next question will come from Jason Helfstein at Oppenheimer. Thanks. Uh, two questions. One, um, if you could talk a bit about the Vimeo product pipeline for the second half, any color um, on kind of what the team is working on. And then second, maybe just broadly on acquisition direction, Joey. Um, so you did Turo, minority investment. Um, you just did MGM, uh, minority into a public um, you know, should investors expect you to get back to kind of, again, historically what you've done, which is, you know, more like share.com, finding something that you can control that um, time works in your favor to kind of fix broken or um, um, businesses that have more opportunity. Thanks. Yeah. On, oh, again, I'll do it in reverse order. The short answer to your second question is yes, you should expect us to focus on buying businesses, buying entire businesses, and uh, shaping those businesses. That's where we would put the, the we would expect to put the bulk of our capital and potentially share repurchases and all the other places where we, we, we have historically put cap. I think that is more likely than minority minority investments from here. Again, anything's possible. We always say anything's possible. We always say we'll be opportunistic and look for things, but I do think that it's it's more likely more of our capital goes into those things which you've seen more historically. Uh, in product at Vimeo, there's a very robust pipeline. One of the things that, that we're focused on right now is how to verticalize the product a bit in certain categories. So to go deeper in faith, to go deeper in fitness, to go deeper in education, whatever it might be, the areas where we're, where we're going to prioritize is make sure that the tools that we're building are really work for verticals. We're not building any bespoke tools for any individual customer, but we are starting to think about what are tools we could build that make a, a really help in the relevance for a vertical. We want to do that because we think that's really good for our customers. We want to do that because we don't want to open up the competitive opportunity for someone else to come in and, and, and start um, picking off verticals. So we're doing a bunch in that area. Uh, there's also, with the world now in remote, a lot of the tools are, there's, there's new tools that are relevant. So for example, one thing we're using right now is screen recording and things like that, where you can, uh, access more of the enterprise 
or find new entry points into the enterprise. We've got products in, along those lines that, that we're working on. Uh, and one of the other things we're, we're talking about right now, this is more generic, but because we are generating more, I'll say cash flow at Vimeo, we are, we can be investing more every quarter. And so we're very focused right now on Vimeo in how can we put more in? Where can we put more? Every, every month now, every quarter, there's more dollars to invest there before we, we, even before choosing to go negative, there's more dollars we can be investing there. And so we're, we're trying to grow the, the product pipeline right now and grow the product resources to, to release more products and, and invest some of this incremental benefit that we're seeing at the business. Okay, thanks. Great. Our next question will go to Benjamin Black at uh, Evercore. Great. Thank, thanks for the question here. Um, could you guys talk a little bit about the marketing environment at Angie? Um, does it remain as, as favorable as you mentioned just last month? And, you know, if the, some of the supply tightness remains intact, how willing are you to lean into marketing investments in the back half of the year? And then, and then on fixed price, you mentioned it's available on 200 tasks or so. I'd be curious to hear how high that could go. And, and do you think fixed for, uh, what, what do you think about fixed price revenue contribution um, at Angie over the next, call it 12 to 18 months? Thank you. Yeah, uh, great question. So, so the marketing environment, I think, just broadly remains really favorable. And that's, that's a combination of, of, I think, just generally lower rates across most channels combined with organically higher levels of consumer intent and consumer demand. And so uh, when you look at you know, things like the TV environment, I think rates are favorable 20 or 30 percent relative to where we thought they would be. And you see, you see, similar, you see similar levels of, of favorability in, in other channels as well. Uh, we definitely pulled back in Q2. Um, it was just particularly early in Q2. It was obviously a highly uncertain environment. But by June, we had begun to uh, lean in and ramp up, uh, particularly on TV. But I would say, you know, the answer to this question is, for most channels, we manage them clearly on an ROI basis. And so uh, we will spend as much as, um, you know, as the channel will, will return on a profitable basis. Uh, with a channel like TV, you know, it's a longer payback period, and there are secondary and tertiary benefits that, um, you know, that are long-lasting. Uh, we started to lean in in June. I think we'll continue to spend there uh, for the remainder of the year, particularly if, if rates remain, you know, in the ballpark of where they are now. Um, so that, that will be a difference on a go-forward basis relative to, you know, to the expense line in, in the second quarter. Um, for fixed price, you know, we're on 200 tasks. That makes up about 30% of, of the requests we get, meaning 30% of the customers that come and submit a request are exposed to a fixed price offering. What we've been doing over the course of, of this year is launching into some much higher priced uh, categories. And we did that in Q1 originally, and you know, our, our, our first proof point was to figure out if, con if consumers and homeowners would actually you know, buy a project online that costs $5,000. And we were able to really uh, figure out quickly that there was, there was a desire for that amongst consumers. There was a, a willingness to you know, pull out a credit card and purchase a, a project at that level. And that's all we really needed to know to know that there is a market there in these higher price projects. Uh, obviously, and I, I think I've said this before, you know, the first se section of projects we went after have a, a global, well, a TAM in the U.S. of about $50 billion. 
but the next set we're tackling have a TAM of about $200 billion. Um, these are things like installing a wood privacy fence, installing a deck, uh, so on and so forth. And the, the nature of, of these projects are such that we have to go project by project and figure out how to accurately price, uh, you know, price in an upfront manner uh, these more complex projects. We're working through that now. We're, we're seeing uh, growth that I think is, is certainly at or above our expectations. And in terms of how far it goes, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is we have to do each project and see, see how it works because they're also very different. Um, the contribution over the next 12 to 18 months, I, I, you know, we in our internal plans, we expect this to grow rapidly and be a meaningful contributor to our growth rate over, over uh, not just the next 18 months, but uh, over the next five years. Uh, in terms of how high it'll get in the next 18 months, I don't think we've been specific on that, and uh, I'll leave that open for the moment. And look, in terms of our investments in uh, in marketing, of which Brandon spoke, uh, as well as fixed price, that's why we stand by um, our EBITDA posture for the year, uh, and that is we do not expect margins uh, to go up uh, this year. We're going to continue to invest uh, to take share uh, throughout uh, throughout the marketplace. Uh, and then just, you know, to, to frame up the opportunity uh, that we see in fixed price and the opportunity when our supply constraint uh, gets gets lifted. You saw we did 9.4 million service requests uh, this uh, this quarter and on a latest 12 months basis about 29 million. You saw our zero accepts were uh, 50%. Just divide monetized transactions by by service requests, okay? If we only get from that 50% to 40%, our historical average, and our goal is a lot lower than 40%, that's 940,000 uh, SRs. You saw we monetized SRs at $30 a clip. That's nearly 30 million of quarterly revel revenue. A vast preponderance of it, if not all of it, falls to the bottom line. So that's our opportunity going forward. That's why we're so focused on product. That's why we're so focused on, on marketing. Um, and that's why we're so focused on, on penetrating the category, because that's our opportunity, and that's just one quarter. Our next question will be from Michael Eng at Goldman Sachs. Hey, good morning. Thank you very much for the question. I just had a couple on MGM. Um, first, could you discuss your views on the um, incrementality of online betting? And if it's if it ends up being somewhat cannibalistic, is that uh, a net positive for MGM? And then uh, second, Joey, to your earlier point, you know, it's clear that online gaming penetration should continue to increase over time. Um, do you think MGM is well positioned to capture more than its uh, share of online gaming relative to its traditional uh, gaming base? Thanks. Yeah. I do think a significant portion of that actually is incremental, but it's, it's who knows? I think uh, there is always potential for cannibalization, but I, I do think it's meaningfully potentially incremental. Uh, and their ability to take share is Again, what I, I said earlier, I think that the combination of offline and online in this category, in that whole experience where uh, somebody who's, who's playing and, and a customer of the company in a digital capacity has the ability to enter a physical place and get some benefit of their, their digital play 
I think is a real advantage, and we expect them that to, to accrue to MGM's benefit in share. That is, we think about the, the category, it's all the same sports. Uh, it's generally roughly the same lines, odds, payouts, things like that. So uh, how do you differentiate? You got to differentiate with a customer experience. And we think that MGM has lots of tools in its toolkit to differentiate meaningfully in a customer experience. And that's the thing that, that excites us there. So, so we would hope that they uh, can take real share there. Our next one's a follow-up. Oh, sure. Could you just talk about um, your long-term plans with the MGM stake um, in success, you know, three to five years from now? Um, do you expect that stake to increase over time? Is there an opportunity to do something with the online betting joint venture? I would just love to hear your thoughts around that. Thank you very much. Sure. It was, it's, it's an important question, and it's I don't have a great answer for it in the sense of we haven't thought that far ahead. We've said that we are, once we're in this, we're in it for the long term, and in it for the long term could mean anything. If uh, Before uh, COVID, MGM was very much focused on repurchasing shares with the excess capital that they generated in the, the asset light strategy. So if there's a... a uh, time where MGM has the ability to repurchase shares, then we'd hope that our ownership would accrete over time. And that, who knows, lots of other things could intervene in there that, that could accelerate or decelerate that or, or really anything could happen. So we're, we're, we're totally open to the range of, of options here. The only thing I'll say is we are, we're certainly not uh, flipping it. We're, we're certainly not in this to try and flip for a quick profit. Great. Thank you very much. Our next question will be from Brian Fitzgerald at Wells Fargo. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, uh, a quick one on Angie and then one on Dot Dash. Uh, any update on consumer intent or comfort levels um, that you're seeing with indoor jobs versus outdoor jobs, discretionary versus non-discretionary? Um, what's been the trend there over the last couple of months? Uh, and then on Dot Dash. Um, we saw a number of advertisers pause advertising coming through Q2 as they made adjustments to and and made sure they weren't clashing with um, messaging with current events. Can you can you talk to the trends there? What you're seeing in terms of resurgence in brand, maybe substituting out of performance. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, sure. Brian. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, thanks. The uh, this will be brief. The we've seen a strong recovery in, in really every category of work. But it's definitely disproportionately over-indexing in outdoor work uh, and in uh, required work. Um, some of the big projects like bathroom remodels and kitchen remodels and large indoor discretionary projects um, have returned to, you know, I'll call it flat to up modestly year over year uh, from a consumer demand standpoint, which I think is great given the context and given the fact that, you know, there's close personal contact uh, related to those projects. But it, it, it's lagging where we would have otherwise thought it would be, you know, in our general 20% sort of growth goals. So we're happy with the recovery, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not quite where we think it would be otherwise. And, and there does continue to be some impact there that will resolve as the fear around COVID resolves. On Dot Dash, the thing, I can't speak to the broader ad market, or I can't, because we see some data on that, but Dot Dash has certainly defied my expectations and odds generally in the category in that 
they have they continue to generate advertising dollars continue to see real interest from advertisers obviously travel there's no travel advertising right now and so that category is you know basically short term gone but other categories have more than made up for it so this business is growing ad dollars it's seeing interest among advertisers one of the issues that we don't need to confront is we are not in the in dot dash we're not in the news business so we're not in in controversial stories we're in uh we have this intent based media which is people trying to get specific things done and so people are advertising around those specific things people are trying to get done and there's always providers advertisers who want to reach the consumer when they're trying to get that specific thing done whether it's it's uh pharma around health or whether it's cpg around cooking things like that there there seems to be advertisers there and engaging and and i keep waiting for uh don't tell him this neil vogel to to say that you know we're not growing and we're uh we're we're struggling with the ad dollars and and it's going to be rough and he keeps saying the opposite of that which is i think pretty amazing a testament to to what they've built and and how the how well they're executing thanks joey thanks brenda great our next question will come from magal arunian at webbush hey thanks guys um i have two questions one one on uh, mgm and mna and then one on, on angie just so historically after you you enter a space you noted travel uh home services dating kind of continue con- continue to consolidate there continue to be active in the space um you know with taking a minority stake here uh in, in in mgm is that is that roadmap still um applicable to you guys can you continue to be active um at, does the, the partnership allow you to take full stakes in, in, in other areas and kind of skirt around the regulatory environment or are you kind of hitched hitched to M- mgm and the, the the path that they go on and then on, on age i just want to ask about the partnership with lowe's um you know we'd love to hear a little bit more about that um expectations around how that can drive um both sp and sr growth in the near term and long term thanks yeah look i think anything is possible at mgm and and more in the space our our goal would certainly be to to help mgm or participate as mgm uh is as aggressive as we would be when we believe in a space and they seem to be very keen on being aggressive and winning and so whatever you you use all the tools that that are available in being aggressive and winning and i think that that is a great uh <clears throat> vehicle to do it but we have flexibility and and options and we'll always maintain flexibility and options uh I think that answers the MGM question. The other one was Angie. Yes. Yeah. Uh yeah, so so the new partnership with Lowe's is something we're very excited about. Um it it's new and it's multifaceted and I'll talk a bit about it. I think first just understanding it conceptually. If you if you look at Angie Home Services, we've had 29 million requests for service submitted by homeowners over the last 12 months, which is obviously enormous scale. Uh if you think about that services led uh approach that we have combined with Lowe's as one of the premier uh you know retail offers of of supply building supplies materials and products for the home it's natural that there's opportunities to combine combine those two together uh and create value 
Uh, you know, first we offer fixed price services, I think, in their retail environment. So that's one opportunity for us to drive consumers uh, through our through our experience via Handy. And then secondly, with the with the partnership we explicitly announced, uh, Lowe's is able to offer a membership to Angie Home Services and Home Advisor to their pros uh, as a benefit of being a customer of Lowe's. So that creates, you know, the intent there is to create some loyalty amongst uh, service providers to Lowe's and obviously be the, the destination they go to get uh, building materials and props uh, And um, that uh, then ultimately drives those providers uh, to Angie Home Services and the Home Advisor to join at a discounted rate. And so this is a situation where the provider wins, uh, Lowe's is able to build a more uh, loyal relationship with uh, those providers, and then uh, we hopefully will be able to expand our network as well. I think we're in the early stages of this. Obviously, we just announced it. I, I personally feel like the opportunity, you know, the synergy opportunities are pretty extensive. Hopefully, this works out well and, and leads to bigger, better things over time. Thanks, guys. And we got room for one. Yeah, we'll take our last question from Dan Salmon at VMO. Okay, uh, thanks, everyone. Um, Joey and Glenn, we know you'll keep uh, plans for the cash to yourself. Uh, but would it be fair to say that another big acquisition is a lower probability now, or is another billion or multi-billion acquisition still a likely outcome amongst the different options you're looking at? Uh, and then a follow-up for Brandon. I can't remember if you mentioned it today, but at the Investor Day, you talked about having separate sales teams for the traditional SPs versus the ones coming in at fixed price, uh, and that you were planning to integrate those more in the back half of the year. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? I hope I got the details right and the impact you expect from it and how that may relate to the comment you made earlier about uh, picking up sales hiring in the back half, too. Thank you. Dan, you faded a little bit, but I think I got the gist of it, which is are, do we have a mega acquisition planned? Or are we less likely on a mega multi-billion acquisition? I think I mean, nothing uh, massive planned right now. Uh, I, I don't know that it's any more or less likely right now. I think always doing something very large has a very high bar here. We've, we've preferred smaller things, tucking things. I think the things that we're working on, very actively right now are, are quite small and, and add-ins to uh, our existing businesses. But we'll, we'll be as likely, which is not highly likely, but we'll be as likely now as we were previously to look at things that, that are larger. I think, again, go to the overall environment, it is things are not generally particularly cheap right now. There's a... Uh, there's everything has, has only gone up for, for a very long time. That is, you know, what it is, there's a whole SPAC situation going on where there's this avalanche of, of SPACs taking companies public, which we actually think is long-term very good for us in the sense that the, the getting a company public via SPAC is not a very high bar because the people who are, because of the way the incentives work in that system, I'll just say it that way. So there's going to be a lot of companies that can go public that may not have otherwise been been able to go public. And we view the public markets generally, we've talked about this or written about this, we view the public markets as generally much more honest than the private markets or much more true than the private markets. And so I think if all these companies, if all these facts can bring companies that are in or around our area or, or Internet consumer technology companies public, 
that that will, uh, uh, over the medium term, not immediately, but over the medium term, give us a much better landscape of uh, companies to look at, and and we'd be excited about a trend like that. I mean, I think it'll take a little while to play out, but the the we're we're cheering the the SPAC parade on of more capital being raised and and more of these companies coming out and into the light and and us and others getting a chance to look at them for for good or for bad. And just just briefly on the fixed price question, you did have that right. We run the we run these these sales forces separately for fixed price versus our traditional advertising or leads model. It's likely that we'll always run separate sales forces because they they really are very different. And the the challenge of going out and selling fixed price, which is frankly not selling at all, it's offering people uh, get paid to do jobs, uh, is very different from selling advertising. So I think those will stay separate. But what, what you're touching on, which I think is important, is we do plan to bring these offerings together so that once a provider comes into the ecosystem, let's say they're sold on a leads model, leads advertising model, that they can also receive offerings for fixed price services. And our general, uh, we will bring those things together so that every provider has the opportunity to engage in all these products once in the environment. And I think the key there, the way we think about it, is that once you do come into the, the uh, home advisor ecosystem, you actually will never leave. You may decide to stop advertising on leads, but you stay because why not see the fixed price opportunities that come across from time to time, and you can choose to engage with those when you, when you want and uh, not when you don't want. So that's the concept, and I think that is uh, perhaps a you know last quarter of the year or first part of next year where we begin to bring those things together. Great. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you all for joining us again and, again, embracing the new format, which I, I really like and, and we're definitely going to stick with going forward. And I hope everyone stays safe and healthy, and we'll talk to you again soon. Terrific to see you. Bye.